will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Amen. This is Brother Frank. I'm back tonight. And uh, this is going to be a little bit different of an episode than the normal remnant call. Um, Tonight's a serious message. Um, It's a message that I've asked my wife to come down and pray um, for the program this evening because what I'm going to share has deeply affected our family. Um, it's been, it's been some hard times, but God has been merciful. And to tonight's program, I've been saving it for quite a while. I was waiting till the show had gotten larger and we got a bigger audience and it's growing now. And it's been a blessing. And I just feel that so many people are struggling that this is the time that I need to share this story because so many people need hope. They need to know that God can still deliver. Now, my wife will not be listening tonight. My children will not be listening tonight. But my wife and my children know my story. They, my wife specifically lived some of it. And so what I'm going to share with you tonight is not something that's been hidden in a closet, but it is something that's known. But the pain is deep. And even though this has been since 1999 when God saved my life, still hurt from those years of hardship. And so I just want to say thank you to my wife, honey, for coming down here tonight. Say hello to everyone. Hello. So, dear, I appreciate, um, you know, just coming home, I started to get emotional thinking about, you know, now we're 21 years of marriage and um, the fact that we're still married and God saved our marriage and everything. I look at myself and I think, man, I just didn't deserve any bit of it. And I want to say thank you, dear, for not giving up on me when, when you should have just ran, you should have just ran. And so honey, I love you. And I'm going to ask that you could open up this program before you leave out of here tonight and, um, and just ask God to bless. Okay. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you come and that um, you give Frank the words to speak and let everybody hear how you can save, bring hope to everybody that struggles and that doesn't feel that they are worthy, but they are. And uh, just thank you, Lord, for giving me the personal strength to... um, to forgive and to let go. I thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, honey, for that. I love you. All right, folks. I want to start off with a scripture. Because at the time 
that this is going to take place when God saved my life, and I'm going to share that story tonight. I didn't understand how much I was going to need this verse, these two verses, and it's from Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, and this is what it says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Father, thank you for my wife's prayers. Give me the words to speak now to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, folks, I was born in a family that mother and father both came generational believers. We were, there was nothing abnormal necessarily about everything. We'd had some crazy family members just like everybody had had, but there was a long lineage of those who believed in Jesus. There was a long lineage on both sides of the family of those that were faithful followers. And even though there were some mess-ups in different parts, I had the stock and the heritage to start out in a good life, to do the right thing. And so my parents were, were married, and, and my mother was, was 21, and my dad was um, the same age, just a little bit different. And so here I, about just a short period of time after we're married, here I came along, little kid, you know, the start of this new wonderful thing. And so my dad, he gets a job and we're in West Virginia and he's starting uh, his new job at his first location is in this little tiny town called Brewston Mills, West Virginia. And I mean, this place was so small, you just, you just blink your eye and miss the whole entire town. And we moved there, and I remember we had lived before, and Philippi was where we came from. And so we'd moved to Brewston Mills, my dad's first job, and we lived in a trailer park. He didn't have any money. We were just, you know, starting out, and my dad was having to pay off his, his college loans and everything. So life was tough in that trailer, trailer park there. And I remember that we would go out every day with the kids and, and, and we would start to, to play and have a good time. And I loved, actually liked living there because there were so many kids to play with and how much fun. And, and I can remember that my dad would take me with him and we would, and I would hang out with my dad and we'd have a good time. And he'd take me over to this person's house. And they, and I remember they had, she had a daughter and I would play with her and have so much fun over there. And, and it was a great time and everything was looking good up to that point I was in kindergarten in life and I thought man this is a great life and so before I knew it you know everything was going all of a sudden out of nowhere began to go a little crazy and one night my grandmother shows up out of nowhere and I'm wondering what's going on and my parents everybody's arguing I'm outside and I'm playing around with the kids and next thing I know the children in the in the there in that trailer park where I lived they started to make fun of me and they were laughing at me and, and I didn't know what was going on I was just a little kid and and to come to find out my father had been cheating on my mother and having an affair with a, another woman and that little girl that I've been playing with was well she's now my stepsister and and my father while he was having an affair was taking me with him and my parents were about to get a divorce and these kids are making fun of me, and I don't, I'm so confused. I, I, what's going on? And, and I go in there, and everything's going crazy inside there. And my grandmother's trying to talk my father out of, of what he's doing, and it's wrong. But my dad was dead set on that. He was going to do what he wanted to do in his life to make sure that he was happy, and he didn't care what was going on with the rest of his family because all that mattered was him at that point. And I remember as everything's going crazy in the middle of the night, my mother, she grabbed me up and we went back to Philippi, West Virginia, and she moved in with her best friend. And from that point on, my life was changed forever. 
Here I was a kindergartner. I thought everything was perfect, and in one night, I woke up and everything was different the next day. Now I had to go see my father on the weekends, and I was living with my mother during the week. And I remember I would go up to see my dad, and I would think, you know, I, I wanted my dad to be with me because I, I wanted to be involved in sports and everything like that. And I wanted my dad to be around, but he wasn't there. But I would go see him on the weekends, and, and I would have, you know, try to have some fun because I really miss my dad. And I remember as I was there with dad, I was like, you know what? Wow. I mean, here I am first, second grade. My dad's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed because here dad was, he's doing whatever he wants. He's got a new relationship and a new family. He was getting ready to start and all that stuff. And he's taking me out. We're going to dances. I'm just a little kid. And I remember they would, dad would pour some wine for him and he'd pour some wine for me. And I can remember as this little kid, the first time I touched moonshine to my tongue, as a little child, I can remember to this day, I remember the burn it had on my tongue back in West Virginia there. And I remember dad would take me to the dance and he'd be dancing and I'd be dancing with little girls out there and everything. And he'd come over and check on me and everything was going great. Even though my parents were divorced, I was like, hey, you know what? Dad's a lot of fun and I really like living that life. And so I couldn't wait to go see dad and my stepsister. We always were getting in trouble and doing everything we could to, to you know, we, I can remember we'd, we'd walk my step-granddad home at night. He'd be so drunk he couldn't, he couldn't walk straight. And we just thought it was so much fun how we could lead him while he was so drunk he couldn't walk. And we just thought that was the best thing that could ever happen in life. And this went on for some several years. And I remember I always when I went to dad's house, things were always the same. I would go to dad's house, and if you open up the bottom drawer in the refrigerator, there was the beer right there. And I remember always dad had beer in the refrigerator right in that box drawer there. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one time I go to my dad's house. I'm getting about uh, fourth or fifth grade about this time. I mean, we're already partying, having fun. I'm just living the life. I'm a young kid. I'm a, already turning into a complete disaster and mess. And I remember opening up that drawer, and all of a sudden the beer was gone. And I'm like, what, what happened? And all of a sudden, Dad's like, you know what? We're going to be going to church. And I'm like, church? What do you mean, church? I want to go back to the dances and to the parties and all those things that are going on. I drink the wine as a little kid and, and having a good time and doing this stuff. And I was enjoying it. Dad's like, no, we're going to church. And now Dad's going, he, every week he's going to church. And somebody decided that they were going to share some tapes of a revival series that happened some years earlier. My dad ended up getting converted. And coming to the Lord about fifth grade. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. I was loving, living with my dad. We were already involved in sin as a young kid. And I was enjoying life. And my mother, here she was, poor woman. She had tried to do the best she could. My father had didn't want to be married. So my mom was living with her best friend. And my mom's best friend, I remember, she was the basketball coach. Even It's funny, I lived in another trailer back in Philippi. But my mom's best friend, was a. she coached up at the college, a local college there. And I remember how I would go up there with mom and everything as this little kid. And, and my mom's best friend was the coach of the women's uh, basketball team. And I can remember going into the locker rooms as this little kid. And I'd see all these women naked. And I was like, wow. And, and I'll tell you, folks, for you, you to think that little children don't know what they see, let me tell you what. I was a little kid, and I knew exactly what I was seeing. And so I was partying with my dad, going and seeing naked women. And by the time I was in fifth grade, I was already having experiences with women that is reserved for marriage by the time I was 10 years old.
I was a complete disaster. And now my dad decides that he wants to get converted and go to church. I didn't want anything to do with that. I loved the life that I was living in. But unfortunately, I still had to go see dad. But the good thing was my stepsister, she was just as crazy as I was. And so we would go out and do everything wrong and stay in trouble. And we would give my parents just an absolute headache and my dad and my stepmom. And, and we would just cause all kinds of havoc. But as I began to get older, I remember I would say, you know, I don't, I'm going to do whatever I can and not have to go to dad's because I want to stay with my friends. I got some new friends. And I remember my mom ended up getting remarried to a wonderful man. He wasn't a believer, but he was a good man. He taught me how to be a man. And he was there to help fill in the spots where my dad wasn't and to help raise me. And so here he was, we ended up moving to Virginia. And so we moved over to Virginia in 1985. I remember I was the summer between fifth and sixth grade. All this stuff was kind of going down at once. My dad was being converted. I was completely already involved in, in all kinds of not only drinking and sin, but sexual sins at such a young age. And, and so now we're moving to Virginia. And I'll tell you what, folks, it doesn't take long for somebody that's living in sin to find other people that are doing the same thing. And so how I got new friends. And I'm having a, I missed where I was at. I didn't want to leave. And here I came over to here and I thought, well, you know, this is going to be great. I'm going to, I got new friends though. I missed where it's out, but I'm going to try to start over and do the, you know, have some good time here. And next thing you know, I'm right back into the same things I was doing over in West Virginia, right here in Virginia. And I'm living up the life. And I remember the drinking and the having fun. And so I, I continued on in school for a few years, and everything was going fine. But I was, I, I was involved in sports, and I liked to play sports. I started in sports. Even though I was messed up, I just loved sports. And, and so football and basketball and wrestling and everything. And so I was having a, a good time there. But by the time I got into eighth grade, I was already recognizing in my own life that I was a disaster. I was a mess. I'm barely making it through school. I mean, my mother can't is, you know, go, I'm driving her crazy because I can't keep my grades up. I can't keep my act together. I'm a complete mess. And I remember that I'm getting ready to go into high school and I'm thinking, Frank, you are a disaster, man. You're a disaster. You're this young. I mean, you're already involved in, in love with pornography, in love with women, in love with all this stuff. You're so young, and I'm just a complete mess. And I was like, man, I know I need to do something in life to make a change from what's going on. So I had a great idea, and I don't know if you've ever had a great idea before. I knew that if I was to do this and this, that my life would change for the better. And I'll tell you, I don't know who's ever had a good idea and it actually worked, but I'll tell you what, I bet it's very few people. But I had a good idea. I said, you know, you know what? My mother had started going back to church a little bit when, as she could and, and everything, and there was a Christian school that was about maybe four or five minutes or 30 minutes away from where I lived, and I wanted to go. It was a boarding academy that you could go and stay at, and, stay, and I was like, I want to go to school here. I'd known some other people, and I'd recognize that, hey, you know what? These Christian girls are really pretty up here. I'm going to go to school up here and, and see some of these girls. I'm going to have a great time, so I, I decided, you know, hey, I want to go to school up here and, 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 and start in this Christian school so I can make a change in life. So my parents, you know, my mom, my stepdad, they don't have hardly any money. You know, we're poor. We, we moved here into a trailer on a farm where I worked for many years after even we moved. And my parents finally bought their first little tiny home. We live way out in the country. And 
And so they didn't have hardly any money, and but they scraped together some money to try to send me to school. And so I went to school, and I'm thinking, okay, Frank, this is the start of your new life. You're going to do better. And so I remember I got in there, and I was trying to do a good job. But, you know, it didn't take very long before I ran into those friends, and I found out even in Christian school, they got some of the same problems going on. And so I found some new friends, and I remember I met two, two twin brothers. I'd known one of them from back in West Virginia, um, back there, and actually met him. He lived across the street from the. You know, it's a small world. He lived across the street from this Christian school, and um, and so he was living with another guy. And I remember that my friend Brett, he would we would sneak out at night, and we'd go out of there, and we'd sneak and cross the ground through people's yards and everything, and we'd go over to this house, and we'd drink beer. And I remember it was over there. It was the first time I'd ever gotten to smoke pot. I'd only been able to drink and, and everything else to that period, but now I'm in ninth grade, and I got to smoke marijuana for the first time. And, I man, I thought, man, I am loving life now. This is great, drinking beer, getting high, having a good time, going to Christian school. Well, it didn't take too long after I'd been thrown out of religion class over and over and over again because I didn't. I knew that if I didn't wear the correct clothes to class that they'd throw me out, so I intentionally would not wear the correct things so I could get thrown out because I wanted to study the Bible, right? I didn't want any of this stuff. I was a, a complete mess at that point, and so I would continue to go out, and, and it, you know, the more you get involved in sin, we used to first, we would sneak in the middle of the night out, and then after a while of doing this, we just walk straight across the grounds at two, three in the morning. We didn't even care, and uh, walk right back in and, and, you know, continue to live this life. Well, by the end of that year, I thought, man, I hate this place. These people are crazy, I don't want this religious. I'm going back to public school where I can find my real friends. There's too much bondage here in that school. So I went back to public school. My parents now owed more money because I didn't uphold my part of the bargain with keeping my grades up. And so the discount I was supposed to have didn't get, and things just turned into an absolute disaster. But now I was back in school. I could still do my sports for right now, and I could still have some fun back there partying with my friends. And I'm 10th grade, and I'm having blast. And and I remember by the end of wrestling season, my 10th grade year, I had gotten such a mess that I'd lost my ability to play sports anymore. I, I was, my grades were so bad that I could not any longer play. And so now I'm like, you know what, who cares? I'm out drinking, smoking dope, taking acid. You know, um, now I'm, I'm out partying, getting in fights all the time, and love to, you know, love to show how strong and tough I was so that people would know that I was somebody in life. Because even though I was a mess, I wanted everybody else to know that I had my act together and I was somebody. And so I continued on for years. And, and so the 10th grade year comes around, and now it's the 11th grade year, and I've been, you know, started driving in 10th grade, so now I'm drinking and driving, smoking dope driving, taking LSD and driving in 10th, 11th grade. I'm a complete mess. I'm, I should have been locked up in jail for all the almost you know accidents I caused from all my drinking and driving and, and drugs and driving from a young kid. I mean, barely even got my driver's license. Complete mess, and now I'm missing school, and I'm getting threatened, and I remember it goes... All the way until my my tenth grade or my eleventh grade year at the end of it, and now I'm in my twelfth grade year. This is my senior year. I had begged teachers to pass me, and they did. I was convinced that they actually wanted me to get out of their class. I was so bad. 
They wanted me. And all I cared about was chasing women, having sex, you know, drinking, uh, you know, doing every drugs. That's all I cared about. Every day of my life, I was consumed with having a good time. And just like my father back then, all I cared about was me. And even though my dad had gotten converted, I didn't want any part of that. And even though my mom would stare and cry on my bed and ask, beg me to do better, I didn't care about that because all I cared about was me. That's all I cared about. And I had good friends, and we were tough, and everybody knew it and knew if we came around that we could handle ourselves and there going to be some trouble. And, and, and we were just an absolute disaster. And so here I'm coming through, and somehow I'm making it. By God's grace, I had the ability to take tests, and I could somehow skate through school. And so here I am in my senior year. I'm getting closer to graduating. And I know, Frank, you're, you're, if you make it, you, you're going to go nowhere in life. You look at your dad quit. Your mom's got her act, you know, but you are a complete mess. You need to change. But and I knew that I needed to change because when I was a little kid, I was taken to church, even though I didn't want to go to church. And my grandma would take me. My father, after he was converted, would take me and my mother would make me go sometimes, you know, to church. And so I knew that I needed to do better because that still small voice was in there. But I would suppress it and push it down because all I cared about was how drunk how high and how many fights I could get into so somebody would know that I was a man. And I was convinced that I was, this was my life. And I was worried, though, that I'm going to get out and I'm going to turn into a, such a disaster that I'm never going to be able to survive. So I came up with another good idea. And I said, the first one might not have worked out as well. I know that this idea is foolproof. There's no way that this cannot work. And so I decided, you know what, Frank? You are such a disaster in life. You're so strung out and so messed up already. You need to join Marines. And I thought, man, if I could just join the Marine Corps, they would shoot me out. So I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to join the Marines because the Marines are going to help me. So I went and signed up. My mom signed before I was able to go for me to get in. And so we, I went head on in, joined the Marine Corps. And, and I remember that when I graduated in 1992 from high school, I'm only 43 years old. I graduated in 1992 from high school. I can remember that at that point I thought, man, I'm going into boot camp in December. And I was like, man, I need to have a good time because after this, I'll get my life together. I'm going to shape up, and I'm going to have it all right because I'm going to be a Marine, and I'm going to be okay. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to party myself to death. And so I made it my mission to party, do drugs, and chase women with every ounce of my heart until that day in December when it was time for me to leave for Paris Island, South Carolina. So I, I finally, I did, I, man, I partied myself so hard into almost oblivion. I wanted to make sure that I tried to soil every wild oat I had before I was going to make this change in life. So I got in the, in the Marines. I remember I went to boot camp and I was like, all right, Frank, you got to do something now. You know, luckily I had an athletic background and I, you know, from sports and everything. And so I went in the Marine Corps. And I, I decide, you know what, I'm going to do the best I can do because I can't get high, I can't get drunk here, I can't do it. You know, I'm stuck here for the next three months, and I better do the best I can do. And so I buckled down for those three months, and I tried as hard as I could. And I, was, I tried so I did so good in boot camp. I was meritoriously promoted uh, a rank. I was uh, the platoon guide. I had the highest physical fitness scores. And I remember that my mom and they came down for graduation, and I was the top. I was in 
such good shape, and I was, you know, I was the top of the pack. I was, you know, I was the head of my platoon, and everything was going great. And I remember coming down. I was so proud for my parents to see me, and I, I was so excited that I, this was the time I was going to make a change in life, and I was going to do better. And finally, from this point forward, my life was going to be okay. And all my family came, friends, parents. I mean, people came to see this. This man who had been a disaster, he graduated. Now is the beginning of his new life. And so I remember I marched down. Everybody was excited, and I was so happy, and I got to go home on my first 10 days of leave, and I was so excited. And I remember I went home, and my friend's like, man, look at him. I looked good. I was in such good shape. I mean, I looked so, uh, everything was great on me at that point. My body, everything looked good. I was so healthy and everything like that. And I remember I got home, and I went out to hang with some friends, like, hey, let's go to a party. And so I went to a party, and before you know it, on my first leave home, I was back smoking dope again. And I'd fallen right back into where I was before I left. But I, now I had to go to Marine combat training. So I went there, and luckily they didn't have a drug test there. So I got into Marine combat training, and I went through that, and everything was okay. And, and we, I survived through, and I got my first uh, I remember I got my first assignment. I was going to 29 Palms for do, um, California to do my training and then over to Okinawa after that. So I went to 29 Palms and uh, I had been doing, you know, okay and, and trying to do well. But, you know, I would get to go home or I'd find something here and there and I'd get messed up. And, of course, it was the Marines, so I could drink all I wanted. That was not a problem. That was great. So I remember I'd been there and, and right after I'd finished my training, they sent me over to Okinawa and I got to Okinawa and now I was there for a year and I was like, man, I need to learn how to have some fun. And I'll tell you what, folks, a drug addict can get high no matter where he is at. And that is the absolute truth. If he has to pull the gas cap off the vehicle and huff gas, he can get high. And so here I was over in Okinawa. I'm like, man, they don't have much pot over here and much, uh, you know, any acid and stuff like that, even though I'd snuck some over in my wallet with me. And so I was over there, and I remember we found out that in the Japanese drugstores, not only could you get steroids, which were, you know, great for lifting weights, which we enjoyed, um, you could also get drink this stuff called brawn. It was this cancer that had um, it had opium in it. And I remember we'd go out and get brawn, a couple bottles of it, and we'd get high on this brawn all weekend long and drink cases of beer out of control. And I remember the whole time in Okinawa, even though the people drugs were hard to find, we had found a source in these stores, in the drug stores, and we were getting tore up and having a good time. And they didn't do any drug tests over there because there wasn't much need because there wasn't a big drug problem on the island. But we were high all the time, and I remember my year was up, and so I went back home, and I'd been partying, running around. I couldn't even, I can't even share with you the stories of the things I did. They're just, uh, they're, they're just not appropriate. I got back to California, and I get there to the basin, and so I found some friends of mine I knew from Okinawa, and, and I remember the first, it was like, oh, man, it's probably a month or so after I'd been there, not even that, some friends of mine were like, hey, man, they're like, look. 
They're like, uh, we're going to go to a concert, man. You want to go to a concert? I was like, hey, dude, I like concerts. Let's go, man. So we went down to a concert down in San Diego. We're having a good time. And so we're sitting there in the concert. And next thing I know, someone's passing around a bowl full of weed. So I took it, checked it out. I was like, hey, man, this is good. And I passed it on. And I got back to work Monday morning. And they said, you know what? Drug test. Get up there now. And I remember my heart sank. I didn't have time to drink three gallons of tea to try to cleanse my system. I had to go right up there and and take a drug test. And I remember I went up there, and you can't fake it in the military. They actually watch and make sure you don't have anything on you. You can't use someone else's urine. They make sure it is you. And so I went up there and took a drug test, and I was sweating bullets. And you know what? A few weeks later, I got a call into the first sergeant and lieutenant's office. Guess what? You popped positive for a drug test you're getting out, thrown out of the Marine Corps. Now, see, back in the 80s and the 70s and 60s, you used to be able to actually pop positive for drugs and, and for pot and things like that. It's no big deal. They would let you stay in. But in the early 90s, when I went in there, there was, and I'm sure it's still like this today, but there was a zero-tolerance drug policy, meaning if you popped positive, you had no chance. It's over. You're out. Your career is done with at that point. And I remember when I got found that out, my heart sank because my grandfather had been in the war. My uncle was so highly decorated, and he came to my graduation. He was enlisted. They thought he was some big brass because – and my uncle was a colonel. Everybody, All this family was rich military history, and especially my grandfather, who had cleaned out the ovens during World War II, had, had cleaned out the dead Jews' bodies. It's going to – you know, it, it tore him up his whole life over what having to do that. Now he's going to know that his grandson was nothing but a drug addict and I was so ashamed I had lived a lie so long that my family didn't and all my extended family didn't know what was going on with me and I couldn't believe that I was going to get thrown out and know now they would know that their grandson their nephew their their cousin was nothing but a dope head and a disgrace on the family and I couldn't believe it and I decided you know what God, God, I don't, I, you know, I'm stressed up. I didn't know how to seek the Lord. I mean, I, I knew from grow, going up in church that we needed Jesus. And I knew I needed Jesus. So I was going to do something to, to try. I was desperate. And I remember that at that time I'd, I decided maybe I should should try to seek God for a relationship because he, now I'm trapped in trouble and now I'm going to be thrown out. I better do something. So I, I remember that still small voice and I needed to seek Jesus. So I, I called my dad and I was like, hey, dad, can you send me some books or something? So dad sent me some books and I started reading them, trying to, you know, figure something out. And I started to get a little bit excited about God and I began to pray and I don't know how good my prayers were, but I began to pray. And I was like, God, please help me to, to, to somehow figure out a way. And so I, I signed up for classes. I got, I got extra qualifications. I got promotions. I had handwritten letters. I'd done all these things. And I was having to go every night and clean the brass and the toilets. Yes, that stuff happens. I was having to shine it up. I was paying a punishment. And I remember I asked, I was like, is there anything I can do? And they said, well, you can request an administrative separations board. But uh, I'm going to tell you right now, it, 
it's not going to help. So I said, well, I'm going to do whatever I could. So I requested an administrative separations board. And of course, that extended the time. I had to wait for a board to come up. And I remember that whole time I was, I was doing good. I'd gotten all these letters. I'd, I'd done all these things. And finally, my administrative separations board came up at that time. And so I, I, I had... Uh, I'd gone into that board and, and I had impressed so many people in that period of time. I had done so much, so much good. And I had done so many things uh, in the military that I had my own first sergeant, sergeants, lieutenant. I had all uh, my first sergeant, which came in, which is a good friend of mine, even afterwards caught so much heat for backing me up. And all these people came in to testify for me to help me out. And so I remember that there was three, you know, I was basically up for what's called a general under other than honorable uh, conditions discharge. That's three down from the top. And so that's basically try finding a good job. Good luck. I mean, it's better than a bad conduct, but it isn't much better. And so anyways, I, I, I got in there and I remember that, that, um, we went through and all these people came in to defend me and the government had their lawyer there and he was saying all kinds of bad stuff about me. He didn't even know me. And he and I was like, how can you say that? You don't even know me, even though he was speaking truth. I was a bad person. I didn't deserve that. I was only fighting for this because I was embarrassed and I was ashamed. And so here was everything goes through, and I've been praying, God, please help me. I need you, Lord. I, I I didn't even really know how to seek Him that well, but I was trying to seek God. And so I remember that all these testimonies went on through the day, and so we're there at the middle of the you know the or the afternoon, and I remember they broke for their final discussion to give a verdict, and I remember that my lawyer looked over at me and he said, Look, man, he says I don't we're not I don't think we can get you retained. He said I've only seen one case ever. He said, I don't think we're going to get you retained. But the only one case he had seen was because a corporal had given someone below him the actual drugs, and they didn't kick him out on that one case. Um, but anyways, he said, I don't think we can get you, but we can beat you a general discharge, which is one under honorable. And I thought, man, I, I did everything I could. I was hoping to get retained, but I, I tried the best I could try, and now I was going to have to go face my family. And I remember we went out that room and I was waiting with all this anxiety and I remember we came back in and I was sitting there and there were three people on my administrative separations board, a major, uh, a master sergeant and, and a captain. And they were sitting there on my board and I remember they looked over and they said this, it's a two to one vote for retention. You're staying in the Marine Corps. And I couldn't believe that God showed mercy on me and saved my job and my shame to my family. And I got to stay in the Marine Corps. They said, you know what, you can stay in, but you will only get a, uh, you'll only get, a, uh, get an honorable discharge, but you will not be able to reenlist. Well, came to find out I got a perfect reenlistment code in RE1 Alpha. I could have stayed and made a career out of the military. And I couldn't believe God had showed mercy and done the impossible and showed me his strength and power because I was trying to seek God with the knowledge that I had to make a difference. And I was so thankful I couldn't believe what happened. And I was so excited that this was going to be a better day. And from now on, I was going to do better and not go back to that. And so I got out and I got back into the normal 
normal life, and now I was involved. And one of the things I didn't share with, I'd been involved in the rodeo and, and steer wrestling and bucking horses or bareback riding and all this stuff. And so I was back out in the rodeo, and I'm having a good time. And, you know, and I'd gotten hooked up to where I was working for a stock contractor on the weekends, putting on rodeos, and I'm having a blast. And it didn't take too long before I had gotten right back into the same things I was doing. But now it was different. See, it was when I was in the Marine Corps, in the, or excuse me, in the rodeo. That was with all these cowboys. You see, you know, I used to, when you see these rodeos and you see them do their interviews and you see their eyes are all bugged out, let me tell you what, the drug abuse that's in the rodeo association is unbelievable. Don't you think for a second that there's not rampant drug abuse going on there. So now I'm back out smoking dope, but I've now i found a new drug. And this is a fun one. It's called crystal methamphetamine. And now not only can you take this drug and have a good time, but you can stay up all night long. You can hit multiple rodeos on the weekend. We can work all through the night setting this up because we, we got this new drug called crystal methamphetamines, and I was in love with it. It was the drug that I come just to absolutely love. And this drug was amazing because now when we would go out into party, and I'll tell you, I already had a gift, and it was a curse in the family. And it started from my grandfather down to my father, down to me. I don't know if my great-grandfather had it or not, but it is a curse on the family, and it is a curse of a silver tongue. All of us had the ability to be manipulators. And I'm not talking normal manipulation. I'm talking about the kind of manipulation that can talk anybody into doing whatever we wanted them to do. And so here I was. I had this gift. It was a curse on the family of manipulation. And now I got this new drug, this crystal meth, and it would increase my libido 20-fold. And I could go into the bars having a good time. And the women out there were just in California. They didn't care about relationships. They just didn't want to have a good time. And so I would meet a woman. I'd find out what she liked, and I would just become instantly whatever she wanted wanted to hear. And I would lie all the time, tell them this and tell them that. And I'll tell you what, folks, you lie often enough, you would begin to believe your own lies. And before you know it, I told so many lies, I didn't even know what was the right lie I would told to which woman. I, was, I, I had to try to keep them all together because I wanted to become whatever they wanted me to be so that I could get whatever I wanted. And I was living every week, every all the time. This was a constant. It was great. I'm living in California. I'm like, hey, this is the place in the land where you can do whatever you want. I can go live my country life in the rodeo, and I can go find beautiful women day in and day out. It is no problem, and I can just keep snorting this meth, smoking some dope, and everything's going on. And I'm having a blast. And I remember my first sergeant, he loved to drink and party. He didn't, he didn't do drugs. He didn't want me to do drugs, but his wife did. So I could smoke pot with his wife, but he didn't know that. And I remember I'd go up to his house sometimes on the weekend, and we'd get so drunk. I'd, and and, and we'd have, I'd have to go out and take him his car, so he, and I'd drive his motorcycle home sometimes. He'd be so messed up. And uh, so I, I can remember we'd have a good time. And, and one time I was up at my first sergeant's, and uh, I wasn't on a rodeo that weekend. I was up there and i can remember we went out to this bar and 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 there were there was a bar we called a it was a fake cowboy bar up in Anaheim. Um, I don't remember the name of it. But anyways, we went out there, and there was all kinds of beautiful women there. And I saw this one woman. She was out line dancing. She wasn't drinking. She was just there with her friend teaching her how to dance and all that stuff. And I remember 
remember, man, this woman is so beautiful. I got to talk to her. And so I went over there and talked to her and, and, and I ended up, you know, saying, Hey, listen, why don't we get your number and got all her number and everything. And next thing you know, I'd asked her out on a date with me. And so we're, we're going out on a date and we're having a having a good time, and everything's going on, and and I'm like, man, this is a good looking woman, and I'm enjoying it. But see, it, the problem was is as I got to know this woman, she wasn't just a normal a normal lady. She was beautiful, but but she'd had some hardships in her life, and she'd had an older brother that had had been through uh, some. He still actually suffers with drugs to this day, and and so she had had a hard time, and and the last thing she wanted to do was be involved with another drug addict and so honey if you're listening turn off for now please I can remember as I was going out and having a good time I could remember that I would meet her she would come down to my barracks and and would come and drive all this way to see me and and she would have a have a good time and all that stuff. But, you know, I was so selfish back then that all I cared about was her. And can you imagine? She'd come down there to stay, and it'd be time to eat. I'd go over to the chow hall, and I'd eat, and I wouldn't even take her with me because I didn't even care. And as soon as she was gone, I was out partying with my friends again, having a good old time. But she was great and beautiful, and, you know, I liked being with her, but I was still going to do what I wanted to do because I was so messed up on drugs. I was such a mess that I couldn't be faithful if I had to be because I had no conscience in life. And so here this woman's trying to invest. She thinks we're going to have a relationship. I'm a great liar. I can tell her whatever she wants to hear, and I'm living it up and everything. And, but, you know, our relationship's getting to be a little bit more serious as everything's going on. And so here I am. Think, I had not had another drug test by a miraculous thing again. I hadn't been caught. I'm completely messed up in the military on meth. I'm completely messed up on on. Um, all kinds of drugs, alcohol, everything you could imagine. I've been involved in everything. Uh, I, I can't even, I don't want to, I'm not going to mention it. It's too disgusting. It's too disgusting. And it's shameful. But I was the one of the worst person involved in things that I prayed until I go to my grave my children will never know about. And so here I am, we're going through all these things, I'm living it up, and we're getting close to the time of the military, and I was like, hey, listen, woman, you want to be with me, you're going to have to come back to Virginia here. It's like, I'm not staying in California, y'all people are crazy out here. You know, even though I was loving California, I was missing my old friends from back home, I was ready to go back home and have a good time. I said, look, you want to come with me, that's fine. And so I remember that my wife at the time was my girlfriend was down there in my barracks one day and so I woke up one morning and here she was holding a, a bag of dope at the end of my bed and I was like oh man and so you know I was such a good liar I it was such an unfortunate gift in my family that I lied my way right out of it it wasn't mine it was somebody else's you know I did the same lie with my parents growing up when they'd find dope on me and everything or in my room and stuff like that or in my car you know it was always somebody else that left it there and so here she was and I said listen it's not mine and because she wanted to be with me but she didn't want to be with somebody who was on drugs because she had already suffered her brother had put her through a hard life at one point she even had to hold a gun on her own brother could you imagine that and all she wanted was somebody to love her that's all she wanted and so here she was she comes back 
she decides, you know what? Okay, let's get married. We got married. So I, we were going to get married in a church back home, so the whole family. But we got married earlier because I wanted the military to pay for my ride home. So I got mil- married, and and you know we came back across the United States and everything. And you know my wife was from Huntington Beach. She was used to nice things. It was it was a nice area, and my wife they had money. And and so here my wife all of a sudden's back in rural Virginia, and she's like, where am I at? I mean, she knew I was country, but I don't think she was ready for this much country when she got here. And so you've heard from rags to riches, and here my wife's riches down to rags in rural Virginia. And, and I can remember I got the military. I, folks, I was so dirty. I, as soon as I got back, I unloaded everything out of our truck, went to my friends. We loaded up 50-gallon drums of oil, went back there and weighed the truck in so I could send off the bill to the military for more weight, and they'd pay me more money. I didn't care about anything. I only wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so now my wife's back here. She's from you know, Huntington Beach, California, and now she's living in rural rural. Uh, Virginia, and with all these rednecks and country boys back here, and she's in a little bit of what we call culture shock. And so she had, you know, tried to understand what I, who I was and where I came from. And my friends were rowdy and they're crazy. And I was crazy. And now it's back to a full on, we're out partying, having fun. And my poor wife sitting there at home, you know, because I'm out with my friends because I didn't want her to get in the way and, you know, cramp my style or do something. But I, I take her with me sometimes, you know, everything. And I remember at one point, my wife, she even tried to smoke some pot, even though she didn't like drugs. She just wanted to understand where she came from or where I came from. And folks, I'll tell you, I feel so bad about that. And so, but it, she tried once. That was enough. She wasn't going to do that. And so my wife, you know, I told you she had grown up with such a messed up family with her, with her brother and drugs, but there was a darker secret that was in her family. It was, it, was the, it was the secret that not many of them wanted to deal with and still to this day. And that was the secret of her mom's sickness. See, my wife's mother suffered from multiple personalities. She suffered from, you know, she, I, I think in her heart she really did love the Lord, but something, she was, something happened when she was young. Um, I think something with her father and, and broke her mother. And, and so my wife grew up under this, not only this, but there was this hidden abuse that was going on in her family. To one point, it was so bad that her own mother tried to drown her in the bathtub, and her sister saved her life. Could you imagine that? Your own mother trying to drown you? And so all my wife wanted her whole life is someone to just love her. And so for the first time, my wife moves away, and I'm a mess. I'm a complete disaster. She's having a hard time putting up with me, but something starts to happen that she didn't see coming, and she begins to build a relationship with her mother who abused her, who hit her, who tried to kill her. My wife's struggling to have that relationship, and so her husband's out a mess, running around, chronic adulterer, can't keep faithful, doing all kinds of drugs and everything else, and and partying all the time. My wife hates But she doesn't want to go back home because she's got this relationship beginning with her mother. And so after a while, after doing this for a few years, and this continues to go on, and folks, I'm trying to tell, I'm only sharing with you a tenth of my life. I can't share the other stuff. It's too bad. 
but here's my wife. She's back here, and, and she, she, she can't hardly take it. And after a couple of years, she's so sick and tired of what's going on in her life. She's so sick and fed up with, with what's going on that she's at her breaking point, and, and she doesn't know what to do. But she's got this relationship, and she's so torn. And so all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we get this notification one day. My wife says, you know what? I just went to the doctor, and guess what? I'm pregnant. I'm like, pregnant? Well, whatever. I don't care, you know? As long as I can keep partying and have fun and do whatever I want to do, drink, smoke, run around, do whatever, you know, snort meth, you know, use pills, uh, you know, whatever I could do, I was fine. Just whatever. We'll just deal with it. So she's going to have a baby. And so my wife, she's like, man, I can't believe I'm going to have a baby with this absolute mess of a man. Uh, she was so sick and, and, and disgusted with me, and now she's got to have a baby? And so my wife's like seven to eight months along, right about seven and a half, eight months along. And, and, and she's struggling with what to do and very stressed out and everything because of the situation that I am in. And so my wife gets a call, and this is the call that you never want to get. She gets a call from California saying, your mother's cancer has returned. She had been in some remission for some years. She's like, you, they need, you need to get to California right now. She's going to die. And so my wife, here she is, seven, half, eight months, almost pregnant. She jumps on a plane, flies out to California. She's absolutely, completely falling apart right now because her husband's a disaster. Now her mother's going to die. And my wife goes in there and looks at her mom. And watches her die the worst death you could ever imagine. It was horrible. It was horrible. And so my wife, she's trying to call me because she needs me. She doesn't know what to do. She's at the end of her rope. She, her mother just passed away. Her husband's a mess. And she's trying to get a hold of me. And she can't get a hold of me because I'm out running around. I'm out running around, and I didn't even care that her mother was dying. All I cared about was chasing after women, doing drugs, and keeping myself happy. Till my wife finally had to track me down. I'd give anything to this day to take that back. And so anyways, here's my wife... And she's she finally gets a hold of me to tell tell me what happened. And I didn't even care. I didn't even care. All I cared about was me. I didn't care that her mom passed away. And so she comes back home and my wife's like, you know what? I'm done with this guy. I didn't even know it. She's making arrangements with, with her brother. She's making arrangements. And, and my wife's under so much stress, she breaks out in this rash all over her body. And so my wife's just all, just in completely under so much stress, she, the doctor puts her on immediately on bed rest. She can't go anywhere. So my wife wants to leave so bad, and she can't. She's stuck here with me. And so the, she can't go. And so she says, you know what? That's fine. I'm just going to have this baby because my wife is a strong woman. And I'm going to have this baby. And then I've, after that, I'm going to go back to California. Her brother is already take care of moving her out. Everything was going to be okay. He was going to get her out of here. And so 
Uh, and so one of her other brothers. And so anyways, everything was scheduled and all that stuff. But my wife goes ahead and she has the baby. And I can remember that day in the hospital. My wife's there and I'm there at the hospital. My mother's there and, and it's time to have the baby. And I was so messed up on drugs that I had to keep walking out of the hospital to keep high. I had to keep going and excusing myself because if I calmed down for just a minute, I was an angry person and I was upset. So I had to keep this buzz going constantly. I was abusing pills. I was snorting meth. I'm smoking dope. I'm taking whatever I can take. I'm drinking alcohol. I'm just such an absolute mess. Every single day of my life from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed, it never changed. And so here I am, you know, getting high and everything's going on. And my wife has this baby. And I remember that, you know, the baby was born, my daughter, Elise. And so I was so excited, even though I was a mess. I was like, you know, this is pretty cool and all that stuff. And so we get home and, and little did I know my wife is, is ready to leave me. And so I'm at home and, and I, we're trying to take care of this child. And of course, I've got to maintain this high when you're this far down in this many years into drugs. I had to maintain this constant uh, high all the time or I just was unbearable to be around. And so I'm trying to do this. And I remember my daughter, when she got home, she would, she would cough a lot at night and everything. And she'd get gassy and all those things and, or cry a lot because she was gassy. And so I remember I, we lived in the basement of these people's home. And so I would go into the back where the wood stove is and I'd, I'd hold her so that the landlords up above us wouldn't hear her crying. And, and so as I would be there holding her, I can remember I looked down and and I would see myself for all my horrible things I was doing. And I'd look at my daughter and I'd be so ashamed. And I'd say, oh, God, she's going to grow up and know that her dad's nothing but a dope head. And I hated myself. But I was so deep into drugs. I had tried to quit a million times. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I quit or heard my friends say, this is the last bag or this is the last, you know, whatever. I'm not, this is the last eight ball or whatever it might be. You know, I'd probably have a lot of money at this point. But here I was holding my daughter just absolutely disgusted and I didn't know what to do. And then that still small voice began to come back in my head. And I can remember thinking to myself, you know what? Frank, it doesn't matter how you're living. You need to take your daughter to church. You need to take her to church. So I remember I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to church. So I got up and I, and I got ready and I would take her to church and I'd get high on the way, get high on the way back. I'd, I'd get high on my own child in the car because I was so messed up. I had to stay high all the time. And so here I am staying high and everything's going on and I take her to church and I remember a guy came up to me that I had known for years and he said, hey man, look, I need your help. Um, we're going to go load up some supplies for some people that have been hit by a hurricane. Uh, could you come and help? And I was like, oh man, I was like, yeah, I mean, they were friends of the family. Yeah, I guess I can come help. And, and so I went with Jim to help and and so I remember, you know, I, we're out there helping that day and I was coming back home and, and we started talking. And, and, and so I began to open up and Jim was telling me some stuff about God and all those things. And I said, look, Jim, let me tell you something, man. I said, a man can't live the way I'm living and expect to be justified. He didn't know what was going on in life. 
He didn't know about the adultery, the lying, the fornic, everything that I was doing, the drug use. The I mean, I I just it was such a mess. I was such a mess. And so here, here he's like, hey, listen, man. He's like, you you need to read this book. And I remember he was telling me about a guy he had met on a mission trip, uh, maybe in Honduras or somewhere. I don't remember. And he gave me this book, and it was called The Day of the Lord is at Hand. It was written by a man who's a frequent guest on this program called Benjamin Baruch. So here it is. It's 1999. It's, a, it's, you know, February, the end of February or so, beginning to March. And I begin, I took this book and I'm like, oh man, I, I, well, this book is huge. How am I going to read this? I barely made it out of high school. I barely made it through. I mean, they, I think I'm convinced they passed me to get rid of me. And so here they am, he gives me this book. And so I took this book and I begin to read it. And it's full of all kinds of scripture and what's going on. And I, and I already had a hard time reading like I hadn't read much books in my life. And so here I am reading this book and it's so full of scripture. But the next thing you know, I can't put this thing down. And I start reading, and I'm reading about the times that we're living in, and and that you know the earth and where we're going, and all. And I can remember back to my dad telling me, and my grandma telling me, you know, about Jesus coming again soon. And I can remember these things happening from when I'm, I was younger, growing up. And I'm reading this, and I start to understand. And next thing you know, I'm coming home late every day. Yeah, I'm snorting meth, I'm smoking dope, I'm drinking, I'm doing whatever. But I can't. I'm reading this book nonstop. I can't put it down and so now i'm on the back side of this hill instead of just only getting high and everything i'm getting high and i'm reading this book and something began to start happening and i started to see myself for who i was and i didn't know at that moment i didn't know that my wife was leaving she was gone it was over with it my life was over and so i was driving home i remember i'd been reading this book for a couple of maybe a couple of weeks or a week and a half it wasn't very long i just couldn't put it down and i even tried to talk to a few of my friends like what's this crazy talk he's talking about and so I'm coming home late every day like I always do, but not just because I'm trying to find drugs, but because I'm reading this book. And I remember as I'm reading this book, my sins begun to come up in my face, and I began to see myself truly, and I couldn't smoke it or snort it away any longer. I started to see the ugliness for who I truly was. And I remember as I was going down the road, I, I, and, I, and I was seeing myself that I began to cry, and, and it was I'm, – I'm, I'm a complete mess. I'm trying to drive my vehicle, and I feel all this confusion in my mind. I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. I hate my life. I'm so trapped in these drugs. Lord, I know you're going to come again, but I don't know what to do. And folks, as I was sitting there, I'm not kidding you. I'm going down the road. I'm, I'm you know, stopping at a stop sign for a moment. And it was like out of nowhere, all of a sudden, in a split second, the fog blew out of my mind. And God revealed to me, Frank, you're going to die, and you will go to hell. <laughs> I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go there. I hated who I was. I hated what I had done. 
I couldn't stand the person I'd become, but I had been into drugs for so many years, and I was so under addiction that I didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God reveals it to me where the end of my life is heading to. And I began to weep, and I began to cry so hard. And I remember I'm driving down the road. I can't hardly see straight. And I'm like crying uncontrollably. And I remember it was at that moment that I cried out. And I said, God, I will give my life to you. If you'll just save me from these drugs. And I remember when God revealed it to me and I cried out. It was at that moment that he offered me another way. And when I cried and said, God, I'll do it, just take it from me. As I sit here today, I remember driving down right by the farm. I was going by and I remember that God came down into my vehicle. And I met Jesus for the first time in my life. And I remember I didn't see him physically, but he was there. Something was happening. I wasn't in church. I'm driving down the road, and God comes down, and I remember as he came in, and I looked down on the floor, and I saw all my drugs, and I threw them all out the window, and I'm weeping uncontrollably, and I'm crying out to God for what I had done, and I, and I couldn't believe it, and I remember, and he offered me this forgiveness, and I couldn't believe that God would do that for me. And so I'm driving down the road. I just met Jesus for the first time in my life. I'm crying uncontrollably. I knew something just changed in me. I don't know what it was, but something just changed in my heart. And I remember I pulled up into my house, and I jumped out of my vehicle, and I ran down around the back as fast as I could to go into the door where we lived in the bottom of that house. And I swung that sliding glass door open, and I looked at my wife, and I said, I'm a complete disaster. I'm all messed up on drugs. I don't know. I have done all these you know, things. And I said, are you going to leave me? Now, my wife knew that I'd been doing drugs. It wasn't any revelation what I was confessing. But I, here comes this man barreling in the house, slings the door open, saying that he just met Jesus and God saved his life. And I remember my wife is under shock. and She's leaving. It's over with. She hadn't told me, but she's gone. And so here she is. She's like, I, you know, my wife was, you know, she was under stress and she's like, I'm going to the bathroom. So my wife goes to the bathroom and shuts the door. And so I remember I'm sitting down on the couch and I'm, I've got my face in my, you know, in my hands and I'm sitting there going, oh my, I just met Jesus. God just saved my life. I mean, I just got delivered from drugs driving down the road. And, and all of a sudden now I'm going to lose my whole family. I couldn't believe it. I hear God, I just met Jesus. Now my wife's going to leave me. And so I'm sitting there and I'm just like, God, what's going on? I can't believe this. And a few minutes, a little while later, my wife comes out. And I remember she walks out and she looks over at me and I said, are you going to leave me? And she looked at me and she said, it's over. It's finished. I'm not going anywhere. While she was in the bathroom, God had laid it on her heart that her husband was done and he was no longer going back to that life. And that day, God saved my life. 
and saved my family. And I remember I caught on the phone and I called dad because I I didn't know what to do. I called dad. I was like, I started crying. I was like, dad, I said, today I gave my life to Jesus. And my dad was crying and we're both weeping. And I remember I told dad, I said, dad, now I didn't know about hearing the voice of the Lord or anything. I didn't know any of that stuff. I said, dad, it's like God told me, I have answered your father's prayers. He said, son, we have been getting together with other family members and we've been repenting for the sins that we passed on to our own children. Because the Bible says, I'll pass the sins of the father on to the son into the third and fourth generation. And they had been repenting for the sin that they had passed on to their own children. And that day that God broke the curse of my family over my house and saved all of us in there that day. What looked like tragedy, God used for his glory. A few years later, my daughter, I've got two daughters now, a real young baby and, a, and one a little older, you know, I guess 12 years old, 10 years older, so 12 at the time. And she wanted to give her life to Jesus. And so I remember I asked the pastor, I said, Pastor, could I, could I get in a baptismal? Could I be a part of this? He said, yeah, come on in. And I remember when she came up and I hugged her. I couldn't believe that God would be that merciful to someone as rotten as me. A few years, about a year ago, not even six, eight months ago, I was also privileged to watch my second daughter give her life to Jesus also. And I remember we were getting ready to go in the baptismal. And my pastor said, you know what? You're going to baptize her. And I got to baptize her. And I came out. And I thought to myself, I'm sorry, folks, for crying. If I die at this moment, mission accomplished my wife, my daughters are all going to be in the kingdom because that's the power of our God. Now, there's some people listening to this program and you've been wondering, you're suffering for some years and you're struggling and saying, can God still do this? And I'm here to tell you right now, he can not only do it, he will do it if you will give him the opportunity. See, it wasn't, that, it wasn't that I came from any line of prophets or special people. No, I came from some mess-ups and just normal, ordinary people. There was nothing special in my family to offer. But at the moment, I got real with God. And I was willing to lay down everything. Folks, I'll tell you right now, when I gave my life over to Jesus, if God, if the God would have said, Frank, you got to hop you know, on one foot all the way to the baptismal, and for two miles I would have done it. Whatever it took, I was going into that watery grave. Whatever it took, I was giving my life to Jesus. 
And there's some of you that have been here, some of you that have been in the faith your whole life, and you've never yet experienced the deliverance of the power of God. And you're wondering if he can still do this. I'm telling you, he can. And he's in the business of doing it tonight. I'm going to close this program out with prayer. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for your children on drugs. I want to pray for your addictions. I want to pray for whatever it is that's binding you because I want God to deliver you. Because I've seen and I know his power. A little while ago, God reminded me of what he'd done for me in my life. He had sent me down to preach in a church down in southern Virginia. It wasn't a huge church, but I went down there to preach. And I remember that as I was sharing my testimony that day, my wife was actually with me. And it was an extremely difficult one because my wife was in the front row. And when we were seeing each other, all these motions, a flood of emotions came back in. It was very, very difficult. And I remember I looked in the back of this, uh, of this church and I saw this woman. She was crying uncontrollably. And I'm wondering, you know, is she going through something? Does she have a family member? Does she have a husband? Because whenever my wife's been there with me and I've, been, I've shared my story in a church somewhere. People always want to talk to her to know how she got through this because many people are suffering the same thing with family members. And so I remember at the end of this sermon, I'm in the back and the woman didn't come out of church. And finally her husband comes out and he says, you know what? She'll be out in a minute. Just hold on. And so she comes out a little bit later and she handed me a letter and she said, I want you to read it. And then I want you to share it with your wife. Now, during that testimony, I had shared about going to this Christian school. Little did I know, she had went to the same school. Now, this is 20-some years, 1992. This is 24 years later, 28 years later. How many years later? Wait, wait. Yeah, almost 20, 26 years later or so, I see this woman. She had went to the same school, and this is what she wrote to me in a letter. It stays right here in the front of my Bible. Dear Frank, I was there at that school when you were, and I knew exactly which house you went to at night, you went to, because I was across the street in the girls' dorm watching that house. I noticed every time the light in the upper room would change color, she would see lighters going off. I remember seeing you and some of the other boys going to that house, and I would pray every time I saw you go over there. You see, I knew the people who rented that house. My aunt lived next door. Through the years, I have been back to that school many times. I would remember what happened, and I'd pray for you every time I looked at that house. Today, I saw those prayers had been answered. God sent me back to her church 20-some years later to show that woman that God was faithful to answer those prayers. Don't tell me God can't save your life. Don't tell me he doesn't answer prayers because he does. I'm going to close out this program tonight with some prayers and ask God that he will deliver you from whatever it is 
that's been binding you and holding you back from that life of deliverance in him. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus. Because, Lord, you have shown your power that you are able to save those which look unsavable. And even those that said to me, Lord, in my life, I thought you'd be dead by now. Now they can look and see that God saved a sinner like myself. And, Lord, I thank you for the years where I've had the privilege of sharing, preaching to my own friends in the jail, Lord. You've given me that ability to share with them because, God, you are able to share even though, save those who are in prison, those who are struggling with addiction, those who have been in the church their whole life and have never experienced Jesus, Lord. I pray tonight that you would touch them in a powerful way that you would release them from the bondage of, of thinking that they can never have a walk with you and understand that your hand is reached out even right now to save those who are willing to reach back out to you. Lord, I remember that it was in my darkest hour that I cried out at the bottom of the barrel that you came running to save a son, a sinner like me. I pray you would do it for them too, Lord. I ask for this in a powerful name. The name of Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Savior of the world. Lord, I ask it in that name that you would deliver those who are suffering. That you would remind them that they, you were able to save and deliver from the hand of the enemy. I thank you for tonight's program. And I ask it all in Jesus, Yeshua's name. Amen. Folks, this is Brother Frank with the Remnant Call. Feel free to email me or contact me. Remnantcall at Outlook.com. And I'll respond back as soon as I can. But I want you to know, God not only can, but he will save those who cry out to him. This is Brother Frank from the Remnant Call saying good night and shalom. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.